Good morning. Um, so, often I ask this question when I come here. What are we doing here? Like, I ask that question probably to a fault. I ask that question. I go, like, what, like, what, are, what are we doing here? Like, we come in, and we have a setup for kids, and we have some sign-ups that kind of sit there, and we do a, this candle that I'm probably going to knock over before the end of the day. Um, we sing some song, like, but like, what are we doing here? And, and even, like, even this morning as I sit back there, and, um, and I ask that question in connection to this morning, I ask that question in connection to, to this season, this Advent season, I think about celebration. Because I thought about that. I thought about like, man, we're kind of standing up here and there's a Christmas tree and we're talking about the incarnation and we're, we're celebrating something. The thought came into my mind that was this. Like, do you have reason to celebrate this morning? Like, I, I don't care where, like, where you sit, how you feel. Because I'll be honest, like, I don't feel like really being up here fully like I always do. Maybe it was just too much celebrating yesterday. I, I don't know. But like, like, so celebration isn't contingent on feeling. Because the reasons to celebrate aren't contingent upon what's going on in your life as opposed to what's, what God's done and what God's doing. Okay, and so, so if, you, if you struggle to find reason to celebrate, can, can I give you a reason to celebrate this morning? Besides the fact that it's Christmas and Christ came, but like Tuesday night, like someone within our church surrendered their life to Christ. John Jost. Like, like I celebrate that. Like can, we, can you celebrate that this morning? Like, is, is there reason to celebrate this morning? Like sometimes I'm like, what, what are we doing? And God's like, here's what we're doing. Like this is what we're doing. We're celebrating the work of God in the incarnation ultimately to, to fulfill this. And this is the purpose of this morning, that the incarnation brings about final payment for sin and allows us entrance into the kingdom of God. So we celebrate. Can we pray? God, you are so good. And I'm so incredibly thankful got to celebrate you. Thank you for drawing all men into yourself. Thank you for reaching down and saving John this week. God, my heart is so full, so joyful. Like This is what it's about. And so, God, we celebrate that. We celebrate your incarnation. We celebrate what you've done, what you're doing. And so, God, this morning, I'm just desperate for you. I'm just desperate for you, God, to show up, break in and give us reason, remind us the reason we have to celebrate. Um, And would you show yourself to be mighty this morning? Um, As you so marvelously do, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Um, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. It'll be a a few minutes before I get to Hebrews chapter 10. 
Um, but uh, go ahead and turn there. Um, so the Bible has a distinct storyline, and I want to outline that storyline for you. Um, it goes like this, creation, fall, redemption. So in three words, we can depict the storyline of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption. Um, and, and creation, I think, is fully depicted from this passage in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, where it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So everything's firing on all cylinders, perfection, rhythm. It's going incredibly well. As God intended, as God designed, creation happened, and God said, it is so good. And then not long after that, we have the fall. The brokenness of life um, and if you, if you never come across statements in the Bible that kind of throw you for a loop and you kind of don't know, fully know what to do with that, I'm going to give you one. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to stand before you and say, this is a hard reality to chew on. Genesis 6, 6, it says this, And the Lord God regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Like, if you can just swallow that, like, you know. Like anything else? Like, like that's a hard statement that points to the brokenness of the fall of man in sin. Genesis 3 depicts it this way. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. God talking to Adam as a result of what says listening to Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so sin breaks into the scene and it, and it, affects, it affects everything. But, but I want to be careful here because I think, I think we can be misled. Um, and, and I think I've had some healthy um, just realignment this week um, as to, to the, the, the deepest effects of sin. Okay? Because I think if we're, if we're not careful, we can make sin more powerful than God. We can make the, the fall more powerful than the created order. Okay, so here's what I mean. I want to give you two things that I think are, that will be helpful. Number one, sin neither abolishes nor becomes identified with creation. So sin doesn't destroy the goodness of creation. Like I think we have to be very careful not to, to let it do that. Okay? Nor does sin begin to become identified in creation. Like let me give you an example. Prostitution. Like we would sit here and say, prostitution is deeply wicked, deeply evil. Okay? At the core, you still have the reality of God's goodness of human sexuality. Okay? I mean, you even take, take other things that are, that are distorted, like modern art that, that's distorted by sin, that's used in, in an evil way. It, it doesn't thwart the truth of, of God's creative mind. So I think we have to be, um, have to, we have to be very careful in, in how we articulate this because evil doesn't have more power than God. Evil doesn't have more power. Like God's faithful to the work of his hand. Okay, and to overseeing the work of his hand. Okay, so, so on one hand, I would believe that total depravity would say that, that like we're evil to the core. I think that's the effect of the fall. Okay, but on the other hand, like we're created in the image of God. Okay, so 
I think there's a tension there. The second thing is this. Um, sin and evil always have the character of a caricature. Sin and evil always have the character of a caricature. Now let me depict this through a recent caricature that I saw posted recently. You might recognize this picture if you can see it. Um, these are the three Maxton kids. Um, what do we know about a caricature? It's a distorted image, right? You can tell who those kids are, especially Mia. Like, there's no, there's no, like, the other two, like, eh, but Mia, like, there's no, there's no question, okay? It's her, you know, to the core. It's distorted, okay? So there, there, there's an idea that, that it's a distorted image, but it embodies recognizable, a recognizable feature, Okay, so, so in thinking about this, okay, so how, what does this have to do with the fall? Okay, so the fall doesn't take human beings and turn, turn them into animals, right? Okay, you have broken relationships, but they're still relationships, okay? They, just, they might just be really bad, but, but they're still relationships present. Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Cain, and Abel, okay? You might have thinking, distorted thinking, but yet still is, is thought created by God, designed by God, okay? Um, so I think we have to be careful about thinking about creation and even the, the enduring goodness of creation, okay? The faithfulness of God in upholding the created order despite the ravages of sin, because here's the truth of it. Like God's grace to still hold us together, to still hold sin in check. We're not as, like total depravity does not teach that you're as bad as you could be apart from Christ. No, it doesn't mean you're as, as evil and doing the worst of possible things. It just means you're wicked to the core apart from Christ. Okay, so let me, let me depict it this way. Um, gr- growing up, we had a dog, and her name was Cassie, and she was a pretty cool dog. Um, she was an Alaskan Malamute, and uh, she loved um, snow, and she loved um, playing outside in the snow. We used to do all kinds of fun stuff with her. Anyway, she was a show dog. And I helped train her. My sister and I actually took her to shows. But I remember specifically training her. Um, I remember we had this leash that was probably 20 feet or so. And I'd take her out into the back field and I'd, I'd, I'd walk around the field. And typically the way it would work is I would be walking one way. And Cassie would be walking the absolute other direction. Which is pretty common to a new dog. Um, and what, what it would take was is it, would, it would take this leash... To remind her that she's not really in charge, right? Okay, so, so I'm walking in another direction. She's walking in this direction. And the leash would really snap. Well, I shouldn't say snap her neck, but kind of, but not you know, to the fullest extent. Um, and, and all of a sudden she'd be like, oh, like, you know, i got to come back here. Okay? Um, and so thinking about, about that reality, the creation is a leash that keeps a vicious dog in check. Okay, creation, the, the goodness of God's creation, okay, if it were not for that leash, if, if it were not for the goodness of God's created order, his hand over it, his grace over it, like what would happen? The dog would be gone. 
destroys itself. Okay, so think of it this way. In the same way that, that, that I, as the, the master of my dog, would persuade her and lead her to see this leash as a, as a guide to where she no longer would run from it, but she would begin to align herself to it. Like that's God's design in creation, in, in restoring, which we'll talk about in a second, in restoring creation and bringing us back to, okay, what are we living for? Here's the distortion of sin. Here's what the world will tell us to live for. But yet God says, no, let's realign. Let's, let's use how I've designed life to be as a guide, as tracks to run on in life. Okay, so think of it this way. Crooked business, still business, right? Atheistic culture is still culture. It's misguided. It's distorted, distorted through the effects of sin. Humanistic insight, there's still genuine insight. God sets the structure, but yet there's directional perversion. And the structure is anchored in in God's faithfulness and sets limits on the corruption. God's restraining evil. So that's the fall, and it's not very pretty. Um, What about redemption? Wholeness. God restoring what was broken, I think, is depicted in what we're celebrating this time of the year from John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk for a second about the Day of Atonement, okay, Um, which comes out of um, probably your favorite book of the Bible, I think if you ever had to choose what book of the Bible you read, your first thought is like, I'm going to Leviticus. Like, that's probably the most fascinating. It is fairly fascinating. Um, fairly boring as well. But um, so let's, let's talk about Leviticus. We're not going to go there because I'm not really going to walk through. But it, Leviticus 16 is what I'm about to unpack for you without us fully going there. Okay. Um, so God, in the midst of the restoration process, he sets up a way where, where the brokenness of sin... The evil can be restored, okay, that ultimately in the sacrificial system, and if you look in your bulletin, you have um, essentially, uh, I believe it's five different types of offerings and what they depict within the sacrificial system, okay? Um, But the sacrificial system was was ultimately set up to, to be an arrow, to point to the cross. And one commentator put it this way, that, that the Day of Atonement, which, which is an annual Jewish day where the sin of the previous year was atoned for. Okay, and one commentator put it this way, that there's no greater depiction of the grace of God in the Old Testament than the Day of Atonement. Um, so let me give you some little information about the Day of Atonement. Um, this is interesting because the goal is to afflict the soul that was the goal of the Day of Atonement. Um, the, some general guidelines of the Day of Atonement was this. Um, the day before, people were required to give to charity, whatever that looked like, to give of themselves, and to ask forgiveness from others. Because in the Day of Atonement, what was happening was um, the sacrifices that would, would make right the sin wasn't horizontal sin, it was vertical sin. Because it was my relationship with God that was being restored. So pre Day of Atonement, Jews would be required to go and make right the wrong they had to one another. 
the day of atonement was a day to make right their wrong before God. So there was a strict day of rest, no work. They, they weren't allowed to eat um, or drink unless you were pregnant or unless you were a young child or unless you had a medical condition. And even then, in some of those cases, they wouldn't allow, they wouldn't allow a pregnant woman to, to fast even if she wanted to. Okay, um, they weren't allowed to wear, to wear leather shoes. They weren't allowed to bathe or wash unless you were um, a high priest. They weren't allowed to use perfumes or lotions, um, nor could you have sec- sexual relations with your spouse. Now, what's the purpose of all this? The purpose of all of these things was really to make the body and the soul uncomfortable. Okay, to afflict the soul. That's really the goal of the Day of Atonement. Um, now, there's one thing I want to point to in the Day of Atonement that's pretty fascinating. Um, one of the things that the high priest would do, um, there's a series of things, and I won't walk through all of them. You can go to Leviticus 6, 16, and you'll see those different offerings that are listed in your bulletin unpacked and, and performed by the high priest in a, to, as a means to atone for sin. Okay? But one of the things that would happen was um, the, the, the high priest on Yom Kippur would grab two goats. Okay, you might be familiar with this, but, but the high priest would grab two goats, and they'd really like cast lots, and they'd determine um, which goat would be for what, and, and one goat would be um, given up as a sacrifice to the Lord, and literally what would happen is the high priest would come, he'd lay his hands on the goat um, as a sacrifice unto the Lord, and pronounce confession on behalf of the priests. Okay, the people would prostrate themselves um, as this was happening, um, and prayer would happen, and he would slaughter the goat, and then collect the blood in a bowl, um, which would later be sprinkled um, on the Ark of the Covenant within the Holy of Holies. The second goat uh, was taken, and um, you might be more familiar with the idea of the scapegoat, which this was the purpose of the second goat. And the second goat, the high priest would come and he'd lay his hands, I believe literally, on um, the skull of the goat and he would confess publicly sin. And individuals would confess privately as they lay prostrate. Okay? And then what would happen is, so it'd be like there's a transfer of the, of the guilt and the sin to this goat. And then the goat would be sent off into the wilderness outside of the camp, never to return. Okay? And oftentimes what they would do is they would even see to it that the goat would be pushed off of a cliff to make sure that the guilt... And the sin was never brought back into the camp. Okay, no, no. Interesting, but, but think about this. This was an annual thing. Every year, they walked through the same process to atone for the sin of the previous year. Now, Hebrews chapter 10. says this for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities 
It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jump down to verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, go back to verse 1, and let's, let's walk through this for a minute to, to figure out what exactly is going on here. Um, Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law, okay, essentially there were 613 Levitical laws. Okay, you, you thought you had a lot of things to do, a lot of things to keep up with. Okay, 613. Because if anyone could ever come to the place where they're like, yeah, I'm good. I've kept them, like 613 can't keep your room clean. Forget 613. Okay? For since the law had but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form. So a shadow is a futuristic reality. So it, it's not a copy, but it points to something. Okay, let me give you an example. Baptism. It's, it's a shadow. Okay? It, it's, it's not... Okay, so when, you, when we take someone, and we're going to do this soon... Um, I believe. Um, when, when we take someone and we dunk them in the water and hopefully eventually get them out of the water if we can pick them up. Um, just kidding. Um, and, uh, and then we pull them out of the water. Like, what are, what are we doing? We're depicting the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Okay? But it's a shadow. It's pointing to something else. It's not the salvific work in and of itself. Okay, that, that's, what, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, that the law was a shadow of the good things to come. So Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, was pointing to something greater that would happen. Okay, it goes on to say, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. This is, the, this is why there's so much danger in, in running to legalistic systems of rules to follow. Because really what we're doing is we're continuing down this cycle of year after year, day after day, making sacrifice, making, I got to get right, I got to get right, I got to get right. In a salvific, in a, God's a cosmic cop up in heaven and I got to get right or he's going to zap me with lightning like I got to get right. Continue on. Verse 2. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered? Like, wouldn't that make sense? Like, if the, if the sacrificial system was really a means of once and for all atonement, wouldn't it end? But yet they continually did it year after year after year. 
Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness? There'd be no more guilt, is what it's saying. That, that really, the idea of when the, the high priest would lay his hands on the skull of the goat, and the sin and the guilt would be transferred to the goat, and the goat would be sent out of the camp, that was more a picture. Not that it didn't have its effect, but it was more a picture of what was to come, because what happened? The next year, they had to do it again. And the next year they had to do it again. One commentator put it this way. Every offering that was made testified to the inadequacy of the, pre- the previous offering. And reminded the worshiper that another similar offering must follow. The sense of responsibility for sin was thus kept alive. So, so like year two... Let's just say, year two, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Well, what does that say about year one? Well, year one affected, you know, previous sins of that year. But like, so it's this, re- this repetitious cycle that, that really is inadequate to fulfill what's needed to fulfill. So, here, so in essence, what's the point? Like, what's the point of this repetition Look at verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Okay, now, now hold on a sec. Okay, let's talk about this. Like, remembering sin. Like, we know from Scripture that, that God says as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. It says that, that, that He remembers our sin no more. Okay, this is talking about, it says... In these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. When you come up here and you partake of the Lord's Supper and you tear off the bread as a symbol of God's broken body and you dip it in the juice as a symbol of the blood of Christ, is there not a sense where you have to somewhat remember like your sin in a way of celebrating what God's done? Do you follow me? So there's a difference between a humble, contrite confession and a morbid dwelling on what's already been atoned for, what's already been paid for through the work of Christ on the cross. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So they couldn't. There wasn't a once and for all payment. It was an annual thing that happened. Not only that, but there were were daily sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament that were pointing to the work of Christ. So the old order is this. Check this out. The old order says there's an annual reminder or removal of sin. The new order says I will remember your sins no more. Now, I want to take you on a journey for a second. Um, and this might be fairly painful, but it has a point. Okay, so I want, you to, um, I want you to think for a second about what is it that brings you um, the most um, shame? Like, if someone came in and saw this, saw your participation in this, like you would be devastated. 
like your closet, like what you hide. Like, what is that? Maybe you've felt that recently. Maybe you've you've been exposed or maybe you've been hiding that so much and, and in you wells up this like, if ever that came out or when it comes out, it's shameful. Like, like what is it? Sexual perversion? Lying? Maybe, maybe you just love being deceptive and manipulative with your words. Maybe it's money and just how you control people with money, your pursuit of money. Adultery. Maybe it's idolizing your body in such a way that you, you control it through inflicting pain on yourself. Through distortions, through whatever. Like, what is that? Okay, now, now think about this. Okay? Here, here's what we do. We live our lives, because this passage, like we read this verse and it says, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You're like, who cares? Like no one's bringing in a bull, no one's bringing in a goat. Okay, that's Old Testament, it's pointing to something new, like woohoo, like what does it matter? But, but think about this, we do the same thing. Okay, year after year they'd come back and they'd walk through these legalistic structures that would, would really point to what's coming, but think about this, like why do you come here? Like, I hope I put that question in your head and, and you think about it. Like why, like, why do you come here? Like, do you come here ever for the sense of, like, I just really, it just makes me feel better? Like, listen, I'm not saying that that's all bad. Because there's some times, like, like mornings are just dark. Like, the enemy's attack on a pastor and his wife and his family. The morning before I'm about to stand up and preach, like, it's pretty ugly, so we love prayer in that way. Okay? So there's, there's a healthiness to the fact that I walk in these doors and I see the faces of my family. And, and I'm like, oh, okay. Like we're here. Like God's here. Okay, so, so I'm not knocking like, do you feel better coming here? That You should in some sense. But, but do you feel better in the sense of like, it makes right wrong. Apart from the work of the cross. Like, this is making God happy with me. Like, do you see that? Like, that, that's the same thing of, of the, the bulls and the goats, okay? Maybe it's how you give to people, you serve people. Like, those aren't bad things. I'm not saying those are bad things. Those are great things. But are those a means to God be pleased here? Like, this will make God happy with me. This will atone for, for, for what I did last night. Like re- reading your Bible? That's a pretty good thing to do, I think. But is, is it a means to like, God's going to be more happy with me. This is my sacrifice, God. Wonder list. Ch-ch- version 
check. Two of my favorite apps, by the way. Maybe it's simply crying. Like there's just something about like you working up a good emotional fix, a good emotional response to where in that you're like, well, I'm really remorseful for what I've done. Like God, like not listen, not knocking that, and not in any way saying that like there's not good in sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. The scriptures say. But is that simply a means of satisfying the guilt and the shame that was put on the Lamb of God when he was sent into the wilderness to be destroyed, but yet rise again? So, so what, is, what, is that, what is it for you? Being a good husband, being a good father, being a good citizen, these are means for you fulfilling what God requires of you. Look at verse 5. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, okay, the incarn- that's what we're talking about, the incarnation. He came into the world. He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. So what if I stood here this morning and I said, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Like it was done in the incarnation. It was done through the work of Christ coming as a baby, living the perfect life that you can't live. I can't live. We try so hard to live it. If only I could do better. Not that there's a bad thing about pursuing better. Because I'm a big fan of that, I think. But what does it say? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body coming in the, the humblest form possible. You think about this. Like one of the rules I have with my kids is that Mikhail isn't allowed to like kiss her brother like when I'm changing his diaper. And I tell her this, I'm like, get away from him. Why, Daddy? He can't run if he wants to. He can't protect himself. Like he's in a humble state. I'm he's lay it out before me and I'm cleaning him up. You know, and you're laying on him, kissing, and it's, most of the time, it's, it's very good intent. Tobin doesn't always think so, but, um, okay, so the humility of a kid, the, the, the most humble form possible to give up all your rights. The incarnation depicts God coming in that form, preparing a body Verse 11 says, And every priest stands daily at his sacrifice, I'm sorry, at his service, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ, when the incarnation happened, when Christ came into the world, He gave us reason to celebrate not what would come in a year, not I can't wait for this sin to be finally atoned for. But He says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you know what the incarnation cries to us? Like it's finished. Like it's done. God sending His Son in the form of a baby to live the perfect life, to die the perfect murder, if you will, and rise again, shouts loud to us, celebrate, for it's put on Him. Amen? Like it's on Him. The guilt and the shame was put on Him, and and then He was sent out to die. So what does that leave us to? The incarnation. 1 John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like if you've come here this morning and you're like, I just don't really have reason to celebrate... I hope that the salvation of a, of, of a lost soul would give you reason to celebrate. Amen? Like, amen? Okay, I hope that would give you reason to celebrate. And, and even more so, the salvation of your own soul. Like, that it's finished. Like you're accepted in Him. And so the truth of Romans 8 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ. My brother is in Christ. No condemnation, man. Accepted in the Lord. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ from the law of sin and death, from this repetitive cycle of I gotta get right, I gotta get right, I gotta do this, like it's done. For God is done, Romans 8 continues on. What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You know what, maybe the best thing you could do this morning is confess some realities of what you were unable to do. And the first thing is to get your life right. Like you were absolutely unable to get your life right. But God said, it's finished. Like, it's on me. Like, I purchased you. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You know what? The season of Advent gives us reason to celebrate this reality but it also gives us reason to celebrate that one day he's going to take us out of here. Amen. Like, I hope you're looking forward to that. 
Like, it, it, like, here's the deal. If you're not, if there's not a sense where you're like, God, get me out of here. Then can I just say, as lovingly as I possibly can as your pastor, you're missing it. Like, if you're here in this world, and you're like, I'm really enjoying, like, okay, maybe I should rephrase that, because I mean, there's some things that we're, people are really enjoying, and we really enjoy each other, and like, there's some great aspects of life. But the more and more closely you walk with Jesus, the more and more you realize this place is not it. Like, God, come get me. Like, I love some things here on this earth. I don't know about you guys, but like, I'm just, I'm just ready. Praise God that he gives us reason to celebrate in the midst of things that we don't want to celebrate at all. He's come, and he's coming. Let's pray, and then we'll respond. Papa, it's finished. We celebrate you. We celebrate all that you've done, God. And drawing us to yourself. And creating an unbelievable picture of the Old Testament law. Pointing to the work of what you would do. And that being a true reality for us. What a privilege we have that, that we're not sitting, wondering, longing in the sense of where's the Messiah, where's our Savior. But in one sense we are. God, you're faithful. God, my prayer this morning is that you would unleash your love upon us. My prayer this morning is, God, that you would, that your light would shine down, that we would see you this morning in ways we've never seen before. In this Christmas season, we would celebrate that you came here for us to make right the wrong. And by faith in Christ, as my brother experienced this week, it's finished. It's done. Like there's a lot of work to do, God. We've got a lot of growing to do. We struggle with sin. But it's finished. We celebrate. We have the victory. There's no condemnation. We are free. And we celebrate that this Advent season. But thank you. Thank you. We love you. God, lead us to respond to you. You're wise. You're good. Thank you for the incarnation. In Christ's name, amen.